Holy Father, everybody has a testimony. You live in this life as a story to tell. One more piece in this story that we've been building all this season. Last piece. Please make sure that as we go to Holy Scripture, it will be clear. Not just clear to our minds, dear God, but clear to our hearts. Somehow you work, you work that partnership for the glory of Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Before I share with you a news report that stopped me in my tracks. I, I could not believe my ears. I need to share something with you here at the conclusion of this series. I'm going to risk be, being misunderstood right now. I still need to say this. I still need to share this with you. And that is, I believe that the greatest spiritual contest in the history of this earth is impending. Now, I'm not going to say it's just ahead. Although I fear, and I, and I use that word advisedly, I fear that we have no sense on how near this event may in fact turn out to be. The greatest spiritual crisis in earth impending, and I am convinced from my study that it will... The locus, the focus of that contest will be between two religious communities. One will lead the vast majority of this world in championing what has been her historic position from the beginning. And the other will lead, as it were, the minority opposition to the hegemony, to the dominance of that first power. But make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen, there will be only two positions. Two ideologies, two camps. There is no third Option, period. I realize how peculiar this may sound to some of you. To suggest that the whole world, I'm talking about every nation, every tribe, every religion, every culture, every society will be divided into only two camps. And I'm going to tell you in advance, if you want to make the easiest choice, then it'll be a piece of cake. Just go with the overwhelming majority. But I need to hasten to also add the other community. The other community will not be a nondescript ragtag band of Earth's rejects. In fact, I believe some of the most influential thought leaders in society, in theology, in politics, in the media, will choose to align themselves with the moral stance and biblical position of the minority community. 
I believe that by the tens of thousands, citizens of this earth will switch allegiances. And they will join themselves to the spiritual movement. Because in the end, would you please get this straight? In the end, I must tell you, it will be a movement and not an institution. It will be a spiritual community and not a denominational body. Make no mistake about it. At the risk of being misunderstood, I repeat, the final spiritual contest on earth will be led by this David and Goliath mismatch. So that everybody on this planet at last will have the opportunity to declare loyalty to the creator God of this universe, yea or nay. Yay or nay? This past September, when Pope Benedict XVI was making his first trip of his pontificate to Austria, he celebrated Mass in Vienna. In the beautiful St. Stephen's Cathedral, I have seen that edifice, my oh my. The news reported it. And when I heard the report of his homily, I could not believe my ears. I said, I got it wrong. That, that assertion, I, probably, I just didn't hear it right. So I went online and downloaded the verbatim text of the Pope's homily. Come to find out, I had heard it right. I could not believe it. I'm going to share it with you right now. Take out your study guide, please, in today's worship bulletin. Somewhere there in all the papers and hymnals and Bibles that you have around you, pull out today's study guide. You got it, ushers. Thank you right now for making sure that everybody here has that study guide. Hold your hand up. Hold your hand up. You'll see the words for yourself in the study guide. Websites will all be there. You check it out. You say, I don't know about that, that Dwight guy. You go check it out, huh? You check it out. Hold your hand up all the way to the back, up in the balcony. I want to make sure everybody in the choir, you got it? All right. Take the study guide out. And by the way, while they're doing that, those of you who are watching on TV, we're delighted to have you. Let me give you a website. You go to our website, you'll get the same study guide. Put it on the screen for you. www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website. Go to the website. You're looking for the teaching entitled The Sabbath. By the way, this is it. This is the final piece in this six-part series. So you're looking for this particular teaching with the name, a test very simple and highly visible. When you see that, it'll say study guide right beside it. You click there. You'll have the identical study guide we have. And it begins with the words of Benedict XVI, his homily on September 7th. Last year at St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna. I'm sorry, that is September 9. Your study guide will make that correction. You'll see it right there. It's September 9. All right? These are the words of Benedict XVI. The early Christians, I'm reading now, you're following in your study guide. The early Christians celebrated the first day of the week as the Lord's Day because it was the day of the resurrection. I'm willing to give that line to the Pope. If by early Christians he's talking about 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th and 5th centuries, fine. The Pope is a brilliant mind and he, I, I don't believe he means early 1st century. He knows not 1st century. 
There's no evidence in the book of Acts. There's no evidence in the New Testament that the Christian church celebrated on the first day of the week. No evidence. Pope knows that. All right. Second sentence. Yet very soon. And he's right here. In the second century, the church also came to realize that the first day of the week is the day of the dawning of creation, the day on which God said, let there be light. Now, here's a line that caught me when I heard it on the radio. Therefore, Sunday is also the church's weekly feast of creation, the feast of Thanksgiving and joy over God's creation. Hey, wait a minute. Time. Hold it. Hold time out. Would you run that last sentence by me again, please? I don't think I heard it. Are you suggesting that Sunday is a church's weekly feast of creation? And that the feast of thanksgiving and joy over God's creation is the first day of the week. I mean, I understand about having a feast. I understand about a memorial to creation. But uh, the words sound familiar. But all that I can recollect for the, recollect for the life of me is, is the Holy Scripture and the fourth commandment and the gift of the seventh day Sabbath. Not the first day of the week. Not Sunday. Are you Sure. Let me put the fourth commandment on the screen for you. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The whole world knows this is the fourth commandment. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested. Would you write it in, please? Rested the seventh day. The Holy Scriptures teach that God's festival, if you want to call it a festival, God's celebration, God's memorial of creation, is the seventh-day Sabbath. But the Holy Father teaches that the church teaches that she has changed that festival of creation from the Sabbath day to the venerated day of the sun. And thus, in a single paragraph, in one homily in Vienna, the Pope reminds his listeners that the church has co-opted not only God's seventh-day Sabbath, but the very meaning of the seventh-day Sabbath as a memorial of creation. I read it and read it. And so Benedict XVI declared to the world last September, Sunday, is a memorial and festival of the divine creation. I cannot believe my ears. Now look at I've known. Sure, I've read and known of Rome's renewed claims, particularly over this last century, to have changed God's day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. In fact, in 1910, a priest named uh, Peter Gierman received Pope Pius X's apostolic blessing for his new book, The Convert's Catechism of Catholic Doctrine. This little Q&A exchange takes place in that catechism. You see it there in your study guide. Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church in the Council of Laodicea, A.D. 336, transferred, transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday, end quote. I.e., the church did it, and so we do it. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no question among historians and theologians of all faiths today that the Church of Rome has claimed from the beginning to change the day of worship from the biblical Sabbath to the day of the sun or to Sunday. One of the most popular American prelates, James Cardinal Gibbons, he's author of the, was author of the book The Faith of Our Fathers, which went through, 100, went, went through over 110 editions. In that book, I now went online, and so you have, the, you have the website right there. The book is there, in fact, similarly. I looked at that page, and sure enough, there it is. Here's the sentence. You, uh, Cardinal Gibbons writing, You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The Scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. A day which we, Rome, never sanctify. Much closer to home, 
the popular priest and professor and writer, John A. O'Brien, who ended his illustrious teaching career right down the road at Notre Dame University. In fact, died there in 1980. He wrote the bestseller book, uh, The Faith of Millions. I went onto the Notre Dame archive online and discovered that this book not only became a bestseller, but was reprinted in 27 editions and translated into 10 languages. So, O'Brien. Father O'Brien makes this startling observation. You'll see it there in your study guide. But since Saturday, not Sunday, is specified in the Bible, isn't it curious that non-Catholics read Protestants who profess to take their religion directly from the Bible and not from the church observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Yes, of course, he writes. And this is his word. It is inconsistent. It is inconsistent. But this change was made about 15 centuries before Protestantism was born. And by the time, by that time, the custom was universally observed. They have, Protestants, have continued the custom, worshiping on Sunday, even though it rests upon the authority of the Catholic Church and not. That's not my word. That's his word. And not upon an explicit text in the Bible. That observance remains as a reminder of the mother church from which the non-Catholic sex broke away like a boy running away from home, but still carrying in his pocket a picture of his mother or a lock of her hair. End quote. You Protestants, you are runaway boys, but you can't forget your mother and you still carry her picture in your pocket. How else can you explain it? The priest writes. And you know what? He's absolutely right. How did he put it here? It's, it, isn't it curious? Isn't it inconsistent? That the Protestants who say they, fo- they follow the Bible and the Bible only are taking their cues only from Rome when it comes to the day of worship? I have to tell you, I, I, I agree with John A. O'Brien. Isn't it curious? Isn't it inconsistent? So what I'm telling you is that when I heard uh, Benedict XVI back in September declare that Sunday now is the festival of God's creation, I was astounded. You may have known that all your life, that that had been the church's position. But for me, somehow to hear a pope articulate it and to hear the news media pick it up, I said, wait a minute, wait, time out again, please. Is is, is anybody going to say anything here? You're telling me that the media are just going to... Hook, line, and sinker say, well, that's, of course, Sunday's a memorial of creation. Is all of Christendom believing that? The whole world believes it? You've got to be kidding me. Somebody raise the question. And if I'm really honest with you, I'm going to confess that as I reflected On that declaration, I brooded in my heart. I wonder, thinking of my own community of faith, I wonder how many even within my community of faith have an inkling as to the divine credentials for the Seventh-day Sabbath. Or have we raised a generation? Oh, well, hey, for some it's this, for some it's that. Who cares? I wonder. Do they have a clue that this very issue is silently being shaped by mysterious hands into the final spiritual showdown of Earth's history? Do they have a clue? Open your Bible with me, please, to the Apocalypse, the Bible's last book, the book of Revelation. Find Revelation 14. 
Revelation chapter 14. And while you are finding Revelation 14, I want to do something with you. It's kind of this famous multitasking that uh, you're good at. Revelation 14. And while you're finding Revelation 14, I need to draw your attention to a stained glass window that is high over my head right now, right up there. We call it here in Pioneer, we call it the rose window. I want you to read the piece of apocalypse that inspired the artist who designed this stained glass window. It's the highest stained glass window in the Pioneer Memorial Church. All right? So you see the picture. Do you see Jesus? Yep. You see him on a cloud? Do you see a crown on his head? Yes. And what do you see in his hand? What do you see in his hand? He has a sickle. He has a sickle. Where did an artist come up with such a thought as that? I'll show you. Revelation chapter 14. Now we'll go to the Bible. Revelation 14. Here are the words that inspired the rose window here in the Pioneer Memorial Church. Revelation 14, 14. By the way, you didn't bring your Bible? Grab that pew Bible right in front of you. Pew Bible right in front of you. What's the page number here? Page 830. Bible's last book. Take a look at this. Revelation 14, 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. That's the picture, isn't it? Yep. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice. Now in the Greek, megalephone, two words in the Greek, crying out with, we would say in English, crying out with a megaphone. This isn't a whimper. This isn't a little whisper. This is a booming cry. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him, to Jesus who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. For the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So, verse 16, he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. We have just read, ladies and gentlemen, an apocalyptic description of the second coming of Christ. It's the end of the world. You say, well, what's the big deal, Dwight? I'll tell you what the big deal is. This is a key time marker. We need to know that what precedes the second coming of Christ precedes it, very much precedes it, as the preceding verses will show us. What we read in the preceding verses, we need to lock this in our minds. Ah, that's just before Jesus returns. All right? So let's look at the preceding verses. Take a look at this. Just before Christ returns, there will be a message that goes to the entire planet. A message that describes the final contest between these two religious communities, these two ideologies, these two camps. And I'm going to warn you what you're about to read. In all of the scripture, you will not find a more in-your-face, divine, urgent warning to the human race. This is the most strident warning in all of Holy Scripture. All right? Take a look at it. Revelation chapter 14. You're already there. Go back to verse 6. Three angels. It's pictured as three angels. Is it a global message? You see that immediately. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. By the way, at the heart of this message is the glorious good news. Of the kingdom of heaven, and that is the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ in the salvation of the human race. Oh, that's the everlasting gospel. So, he says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, there it is again, megalophone, saying, booming it out. This has to go to the entire civilization, saying with a loud voice, verse 7, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Uh-oh, we're running out of time. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Would you jot this down, ladies and gentlemen? Just before the return of Christ, there will go forth an urgent and final appeal to the human race to return to the Creator. Un- 
unmistakably clear, return to the Creator, the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of waters, and worship Him. Please note, and worship Him. Worship. Keep your pen moving. The Greek of Revelation 14, 7 is identical to the Greek of the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. The Greek version of the Ten Commandments are called the Septuagint, LXX. That means 70 translators collaborated to put that Greek translation of the Old Testament together. The, the Greek words are identical. There is no question the linkage here is intentional. And it is clear. In fact, jot it down. Clearly, the Sabbath... The memorial of the Creator is central to God's final appeal. Just before Jesus comes, His final appeal to the human race will be, come back to the Creator, worship the One who made heaven and earth. Straight out of the fourth commandment. All right, but there are three angels. Take a look at this second angel. Whoa. This would be verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Would you jot this down as well? Babylon is the apocalyptic symbol for an end-time geo-religio-political confederacy, a confederacy against the Creator God. Clearly, in, in the apocalypse, it is this union opposing the Creator God. Two angels down, one to go. Here comes number three, verse nine. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice. There it is again, megaphone, booming out. This voice has to go to the entire civilization, saying with a loud voice. Now, this is the most strident. This is this is the in your face part. Saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. Verse 10, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Would you jot this down, please? God warns the world not to receive. Look, at every American knows about the mark of the beast. If you go to a supermarket and you just scan the headlines of those tabloids, you will see a headline yet ahead. About every three months they recirculate it. What is the mark of the beast? Please note, God is warning the world not to receive the mark of the beast. What is that? That's the sign. That is the sign of Babylon's claim to global authority. Hey, look, if Babylon is this final end time confederacy against the creator God. And remember, it is clear there are only two camps, two ideologies, two positions. If Babylon is one of those camps, who, pray tell, would be in that other camp? Who else? Who else? John will not leave us wondering. Look at verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here's the other camp. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Would you write it down, please? The saints. That's code word for God's loyal friends on earth at the end of time. The saints are those who keep the commandments. The commandments of God, which, by the way, would include the Sabbath or fourth commandment. Now, wouldn't it? They keep the commandments of God and they hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Who's Jesus? He's both the Lord of salvation and the Lord of the Sabbath. Who are these? In other words, keep your pen moving. The final spiritual contest before Christ returns will be a David and Goliath showdown between the mighty power of Babylon and the obedient followers. Of the Creator God. A contest, by the way, that will threaten their very lives. Just turn back one page. Come on, one page. Back to Revelation 13. You're already in 14. Go back to 13. Take a look at this, will you? 
This is a more graphic depiction of that final showdown, that final contest just before Christ comes. Okay, Revelation 13. Let's pick it up in verse 15. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. Now, all the time, time out, time out right there. Who is this he? Well, there's a, that's a whole other study. It is clear, however, from what we are reading, that this he is a global superpower. That has to be clear. For he will command, whoever this he represents, he will command the entire earth and the earth will obey. He becomes a partner with this Babylon confederacy. He becomes a partner in leading the world to embrace the authority of the Babylon confederacy. So that's, that's all you need to know right now. Verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. So there's some kind of replication of this beast. And by the way, the beast is another apocalyptic symbol, twin symbol to, to Babylon. So it's this confederacy. So he makes this, he makes this image. Of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship, key word, as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And verse 17, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Would you jot it down, please? It is clear here. It is crystal clear that this final showdown, this, 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 this spiritual crisis just before Christ returns, is a crisis over worship. Would you write that down, please? It is worship that will define the final moral battle between these two camps. Worship, worship, worship. Three angels are crying out, don't worship anyone but the Creator God. And this other power says, you will worship the image that I have set up. Now, I need to remind you from your study of the apocalypse that nearly every line in the book of Revelation is borrowed from the Old Testament. Which means, would you jot this down, please? Which means that this narrative comes straight out of Daniel 3. Right in Daniel 3. Everybody knows the story of Daniel 3. This is the story of that, that bold monarch, Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire. Acknowledges the supremacy of God and yet in a moment of insane pride. You remember the story? Insane pride. He says, I need the world worshiping me. And Daniel 3 is the story of him erecting this massive golden image. And the command goes out. And you look at the word sometime in Daniel 3. It is a command to the whole world. I want the whole world to bow down at this image. Bow down at the image. The uh, worship image, whole world, bow down. That linkage is clear, isn't it? Revelation 13, Revelation 13, Daniel 3. The linkage is clear. But you remember the story. There were three young, young adults. They were Hebrews. Three young Hebrew men. And when the command went out, the whole world bowed down. Those three would not budge. And you have it in your study guide. A direct quote here from Daniel 3.18. What did they say to the king? Let it be known to you, O king. That we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship. Key word, see, worship. Nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. You remember the king was so infuriated that he throws them into the fiery furnace, which they miraculously survive. Jot it down, ladies and gentlemen. Revelation 13's linkage to Daniel 3. What is it, what is it teaching us? It declares that worship, 
Worship is at the heart of the final spiritual crisis on earth. What's this crisis over? The human command to worship versus the divine commandment to worship. You have a showdown between authorities. Keep your pen moving. The divine day of worship. Every scholar on earth is clear. That is the Sabbath. The human day of worship. Every historian is clear. That became Sunday. And in the end, keep writing, the whole world will have to choose whose authority they will accept. The authority of the divine or the authority of the human. You choose two camps, two ideologies. There is no third option. Sakai Kubo is absolutely right in his book, God Meets Man. Jot this down. In one sense, the Sabbath is somewhat an arbitrary day. Ultimately... The keeping of the Sabbath on the seventh day is an act of obedient and self-renouncing faith in the recognition of God's sovereignty. That's what it is, ultimately. It's just, well, God has the authority to tell me what He would like from me. It's a recognition of God's sovereignty over us. One day, ladies and gentlemen, you and I will have the choice. In no uncertain terms, it will be the choice between two days of worship. It will be the choice between the sovereignty of the Most High God who claims to have given the day or the choice of the sovereignty of the church that claims to have changed the day. There is no third choice. It comes down to sovereignty and authority. Two competing authorities. Two competing days. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, do I? Please, Pastor. This is, this is way too simple. This, this, is, this is so elementary. You can't tell me that the human race comes down to this. Oh, my friend, be careful about dismissing something so elementary. Has it ever occurred to you that every test God gives is elementary? Every test. Marvin Moore, in his provocative new book, Could It Really Happen?, observes that whenever God, jot this down, whenever God has given a test in sacred history, the test has always been defined by these two characteristics. Jot it down. Very simple and highly visible. Everybody sees. Everybody knows. I mean, just, let's, just run, let's just run through the list. Garden of Eden. Very simple. There's a tree. I don't want you to touch that. I don't want you to take a, a fruit from that tree. <laughs> so simple. Highly visible. We'll know if you go. A test very simple and highly visible. How about the giving of the manna? When God gives the manna to the children of, uh, of, of uh, Israel in the wilderness, He says, this is going to be very simple, guys. You got manna six days of the week, but on my holy Sabbath, there'll be no manna. You go out, you look for it, you'll find nothing, and everybody will see you. Very simple and highly visible. How about the the plains of Babylon? That golden image. I mean, how how could you get more simple than that? You either stand or you fall. You either bow down or you stay standing. Very simple and highly visible. By the way, if you're a young man and there are only three of you in the masses that are bowing down and the three of you are standing, it is highly visible. God's tests are always very simple and highly visible. Take Daniel, the Persian king who says, hey, Daniel, guess what? I got a law for 30 days and nobody prays to anybody but me. And what does Daniel do? Very simple. Throws open the the, the shades to his window. Gets down so the whole world can see him. He kneels down. Very simple and highly visible. I will pray to nobody but the Creator God. Ladies and gentlemen, God's tests have always been very simple and highly visible. At the end of time, it will be very simple and highly visible. Sabbath or Sunday. My authority or their authority. You choose. It's that simple. You choose. Very simple. And highly visible. 
Ah, you're saying, come on, Dwight, please. In America? It never happened in America. It'll never happen in the West. It will never happen on this planet. Commanding people to worship. Ooh, Marvin Moore quotes a social scientist by the name of Michael Barkin, who teaches at the University of New York in Buffalo and who wrote the book Disasters and the Millennium. This isn't in your study guide. I'll run three statements from that book on the screen for you. You see what you think. Statement number one, disaster creates conditions peculiarly fitted to the rapid alteration of belief systems. When a disaster happens, boom, I can change overnight if I have to. All right, that's sentence number one. Here comes sentence number two on the screen. Disaster produces the questioning, the anxiety, and the suggestibility that are required for change. Only in its wake are people moved to abandon old values of the past. Let me have your attention for a minute. I remember reading three days after that tragedy called September 11, 2001. Twin Towers, Pentagon, a field in Pennsylvania. Three days afterwards, they released a poll of Americans. And get this, 57% of Americans said, you know what? I am willing to give up civil liberties for the sake of security. Disaster can shift a paradigm overnight. And what you would never embrace, I would, I would never, I would never go with a law like that. I would never bow down overnight, overnight crisis. Reverse yourself. One last line. The third line. Put it on the screen here. How's it go? Belief systems which under non-disaster conditions might be dismissed. Now in a disaster, receive sympathetic consideration. I'm willing to entertain that. Oh, I wouldn't. I would never have done that before. But you know what? We've got to do something to protect ourselves. Don't kid yourself, ladies and gentlemen. What we say could never happen in the land of the free could happen literally overnight with a debilitating crisis or disaster. So be forewarned about your tendency to just ah, dismiss Revelation 13 too quickly. Be forewarned. Several months ago, I received a phone call in the dark of the night. Sounds mysterious, doesn't it? It was. <laughs> Gentleman on the other end of the line introduced himself to me. I had never heard of him before. I had not met him then. I have not met him now. But he told me that there was going to be a meeting behind closed doors in the nation's capital. And that he was going to be in that meeting. He named the organizations that were being convened in that closed-door meeting. Yeah, i got to tell you, it, it was so preposterous to me that this man would be invited to a meeting like that that I just phew, hung up and forgot all about it. Very recently, a report came to my attention that describes what took place in that meeting behind closed doors. I have worked hard to verify this. I've been on the phone. I have talked to people. I've listened to our attorney. 
I must tell you that I cannot verify the veracity of this report, of who was there, whether this was, in fact, the conversation last November. And that, in fact, in just a few weeks, when a very influential spiritual leader comes to this nation, there will be a reconvening of this group. I have no way, no way to verify that report. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen? Forget it. Who needs a report? We don't need adrenaline. We don't need adrenaline. To help us understand that it is not beyond, it is not beyond credence to imagine that there may be forces one day working behind a hundred closed doors if you want to have it that way who will be quietly shaping what this book declares will indeed be the final crisis. We don't need adrenaline. You know what we need? We need the Spirit of Jesus to give us the heart of those three Hebrews. Just to stand. You know, I want to be found standing. I don't know how this thing is going to shake down in all the details. I just know this. I want to be found standing. Just like those three boys. I want to be found standing. The words of James Russell Lowell. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. In the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. There will come a moment, ladies and gentlemen. There will come a moment. But you know what? I don't want to wait till that moment, please. The reality is truth, the sooner truth is embraced, the deeper it goes into the very heart and soul of the one who says, I'll stand. Those three boys didn't stand that day because they had suddenly got a little idea in their brains and, hey, what do you say we stand today? Those boys had grown up in it. Those boys had grown up in it. And it stuck. People may have laughed it out of them, tried to. People may have tried to say, you know what, if you're really sophisticated and bright like me, you won't believe this. But those boys said, you know what, I was taught this way. I believe Holy Scripture verifies this position. And I'm not going to change my mind now that the crisis has come. I understand that for some of you who have been tracking this series for the last, let's be six times now, I understand that some of this is new. That you're saying, whoa, I should, the Bible and, and the Seventh-day Sabbath. For others, perhaps it's been a review but the fact of the matter is, whether this has been a review or a first-time encounter, the reality is we, every truth gives us an opportunity to respond. So I need to end today with a very simple appeal. You know what the bottom line is to the Bible teaching about the Seventh-day Sabbath? The bottom line, this is the bottom line, it's that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's it. That's the truth. So you see, when you make a decision about the Bible Sabbath, it's not about a decision between you and your spouse. It's not a decision between you and your family or you and your friends or you and your church or you and your pastor or priest. Listen, it's a decision about you and Jesus. And I need to tell you something else. I'm not talking right now. I'm not talking 
about switching churches, leaving one church or joining another. That's not what I'm saying at all. Here's what I'm saying. If this has been something new for you, and there's something deep in your mind and heart that has said, you know, yeah, brother, this, this makes sense. If so, my friend, here's my invitation. Why don't you begin? Why don't you begin setting aside God's seventh-day Sabbath and honoring Him and experiencing what He's always hoped you would experience in the gift of that day? You don't have to make a big deal about it. You don't have, you don't have to run to work and tell everybody. Or You can just begin. Test it for yourself. See if, in fact, this divine gift from the garden isn't the right gift for your life right now. This much I'm going to tell you. I got, I got good news for you in this regard. And that is, when the teacher is your friend, you have nothing to fear about a test in the end. <laughs> Just stay with your friend. Stay close. Embrace your Savior. Call Him Lord. Call Him Lord of the Sabbath. Call Him Lord of salvation. Follow Him. In fact, that's it. It's a simple test. Remember, very simple and highly visible. This test is so simple. The final test is so simple. It has only one question on it. Final exam. One question. Jesus saying to you, will you follow me? That's it. That's it, guys. Everything comes down to Jesus. Will you follow me?